All right, let's grab our Bibles, Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2. Sometimes we're a little too familiar, a little too familiar with the songs of the season. Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12. If you need to find it on your phone or uh, if you brought a physical Bible, extra spiritual, I love it. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. 1 through 12. If you're there, say amen. Amen. If you're still looking, say hold up. All right, all right, that sounds like we're good. Matthew chapter 2, hear the reading of God's word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you of Bethlehem, In the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that had been seen, or that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, the desire of nations, the desire of nations. Let's pray before we jump in. Father, uh, we are amazed that you would work in such a way that is beyond our understanding, beyond our expectations. As we celebrate this season, we're celebrating a plan that you unfolded in history that no one saw come. That you would come in the form of a baby boy in such an obscure town to such an obscure family with seemingly no power. And yet, God, you came to save the world. You came to set up a kingdom like no other. And so as we hear this story again today, may your spirit work into our hearts the truth of the gospel that should never Run dry, that you are our king, and you love us. Let us believe it today with deeper faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You may be seated. See, often we don't know what lies below the surface somewhere until there's a good shaking. Sometimes you just need a good shaking up of things to bring things to the surface that you didn't really know existed before. And that happened in April of 2007 where there was an earthquake, a massive earthquake in the Solomon Islands off the coast of Australia. 
It was one of those huge earthquakes that ended up causing a tsunami and multiple aftershocks, and it was just a terrible situation, and there were many things that came afterwards that we've come to expect in that kind of situation. But there were other things that were completely unexpected. After the earthquake, there was something that rose to the surface out of the ocean, and at first people didn't know what to think of it or what it even was, but the more they looked at it, the more they realized this was an old World War II torpedo ship. Like this had been at the bottom of the ocean for over 60 years and no one knew it was there. And here's the crazy thing. All of the explosives on it were still perfectly intact. It was completely, I mean, it was a bomb boat. Like this thing would blow up the island if it went off. And so they brought in this bomb squad and and they had to make sure everything was done right to, to, to uh, take care of the bombs and, and get rid of them. And, and they bring in all these experts who are trying to find out how did this happen? How did we not know it was there? So then they dive a little deeper and they find out there's a whole slew of wreckage from World War II all along the coastline and no one knew. No idea. Just waiting for something, as they saw, to shake it up. The earthquake somehow loosened the ship and it, whatever was holding it down there, it came up to the surface and everyone realized what was below it. And it reminds me of a Christmas hymn. It might sound a little strange, but the song we just sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, I mean, it's, it's this classic Advent song where you're singing a, a, a line like, come, desire of nations, come. And it sounds like a great Christmas story because Jesus has come and praise God, He's here and, and He's coming again and He's bringing hope for us and we remember that and we wait for that. But where does that lyric come from? Well, it actually comes from the Old Testament prophet Haggai. And Haggai, if you've never read his, his short uh, prophetic book in the Old Testament, he prophesied during the Old Testament return to the promised land, returning from exile, and they come to return and reestablish their nation and rebuild the temple. And as they're doing this, the people who had been around from the olden days, they realize this is nothing like the real thing. That this is not the glory that it was in the past. And so people start to lament and they're sad that it wasn't what it used to be. And Haggai prophesies that one day God will restore that glory like it was, but even greater. And this is what he says in chapter 2 of his prophecy. Stick with me. He says, and I will shake on this day. He said, I will shake all the nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory. Now, don't miss this. The hymn writer was, was making a statement by putting that in the hymn. He was making a political statement. He's saying, when Jesus comes, he's going to shake all the nations. In other words, when Jesus comes, he's not going to leave things in the status quo. When Jesus comes, he's not going to leave life the way it was before. When Jesus comes, he's going to shake every nation to its core and things are going to come out that you didn't know were there. But when he comes, he will be the desire that they were all waiting for. See, we come to this Advent season and maybe you've been in the church a while and, and you've celebrated Advent or maybe you never even heard of Advent. Well, the word means coming. It's, it's this waiting for the coming of Jesus and it's, all, it's, it's a season of waiting. We're waiting for God to show up, waiting for God to, to care for, 
for whatever our need may be, waiting for God to forgive our sins, whatever the waiting may be. But have you ever thought that you're waiting for an earthquake? Have you ever thought that you're waiting for God to turn your whole life upside down so that it looks nothing like it was? That's what the coming of Jesus is. When Jesus comes, what the Old Testament prophets were saying was, He's going to come to shake everything up. And it's going to be your desires. Your desires will not stay the same. They have to be changed. And so that's what I want to ask today as we look at this story that maybe is too familiar. What what does it say about the gospel reordering our desires? Well, first of all, if you're taking notes, it, it reveals that we have a desire for the king. That we have a desire for the king. So look at verse 1. Look at what it says. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Right? Again, it's so familiar. You you might miss its significance, but who were these wise men? Like, who are those little guys you put on your your mantle in the little figurine form? Do you even know who they are? History's tried to fill in the gaps because we don't know much from the Bible. So history's tried to say that these men must be kings, right? They're they're bringing treasures and they seem to be royalty. They, They must be kings, but the Bible never says that. Other traditions in history have have said that there must be three of them because they brought three gifts. And so maybe one had gold, one had frankincense, one had myrrh. You know, there's songs like We Three Kings, right? But the Bible never says that. There's very little information about these strange, mysterious wise men in this story. And all we know is what Matthew calls them, which is magi. Magi, which loosely means astrologers. There's even debate about what that means. It's some kind of scholarly position that that studied the stars. And so all we really know about these men is they were studying the stars, seeking something from God, not even knowing what they were seeking. And let me tell you, they were the most unlikely people to be seeking Jesus. These were men who, who weren't even Jews. They were Gentiles. The Bible doesn't tell us where they're from, but somewhere from the Far East. These were Gentiles. They they weren't even Jews. They they weren't Orthodox believers. They were pagan astrologers who who worshipped the cosmos. They weren't powerful. They weren't royalty. They weren't influential. They were marginalized, powerless, forgotten Eastern people. And here they are in the second chapter of Matthew's Gospel with prominent position. These were the least likely people to be seeking the Messiah, and here they are. Why? Because God was unveiling His plan that He wanted the nations to come. That God was going to bring together people from all over the world in this Messiah, and the Magi were the first fruits of the nations coming to Him. It was the beginning of a new era. It was the beginning of a new era where the fulfillment of the prophecy that, that the desire of all the nations would be found in this one desire, and his name is Jesus. Right? What, what we're seeing in Matthew is that this deep desire in the Magi is being fulfilled in a deeper desire for Jesus. Augustine, that great uh, saint of the early church, said this. He said, Lord, make me holy, but not yet. 
Lord, make me holy, but not yet. He wrote those words in his journal as he was a young man and he was, he was experiencing life in, in a chaotic state. He, he had left home and he grew up in, the, in a believing family with his mom as a believer and his dad wasn't a believer. And he grew up in northern Africa in the fourth century where there wasn't a lot of uh, positive influence around him as he describes it. And so he goes off to school with kind of this quasi-religious interest, but his main interest was women. Like all he cared about was I want to go off to school and I want to live out all of my sexual fantasies and I want to party and I want to live the life that I couldn't live in my parents' home. And, and so he does. He does crazy stuff. He lives wild. And he goes from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. And then he starts to realize this is not fulfilling me. I got to find some kind of deeper teaching. And so then he starts getting into philosophies and religions and he goes from teacher to teacher to teacher. He's searching, he's searching. And one day, he comes back to Milan and someone hands him a Bible and says, begin reading the New Testament. And it's in reading the New Testament on his own that God opened his eyes and spoke to his heart and he bowed down and he prayed and he gave his life to Jesus in that moment. And this is what he wrote later in his journal uh, after his conversion in his confessions. He says this, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. In other words, what Augustine was saying is, there's this greater desire in my life beneath the surface of what I'm seeing in my life. Right? In other words, all of us are searching for Jesus, but only some of us know it. All of us are searching for Jesus, but only some of us are aware of it. In other words, the desire of our culture, all the desires you see are really a deeper desire for Jesus. Take a couple examples. The desire in our culture that you see and, and you see in our community right now for justice. Amen. Right? We want to see justice roll down. We want to see justice in our education system, in our judicial system, in the housing system. We want to see justice. Amen. Right? Amen. But listen, where does that desire come from? Have you ever thought about that? Why do I want justice? People in our culture can't answer that question. The church can answer that question. The reason people want justice, there might be some side reasons, right? There might be your life is, is hard or there's people you love. There's, there's issues that you care about. But deep down, you can't answer the question unless you say it's because I was designed for it. The reason you want justice is because God made you in His image as the just one. Amen. The reason you desire justice in our, in our neighborhood, justice in our city, justice in your family, is because God designed you with that desire because you want Him, the just one. And let me tell you, if you, don't, if you, uh, if you get justice and you don't get Jesus, you'll still be restless. You'll still be restless. Because he made you for him. And the justice you desire is a reflection of his heart, but it's not him. I mean, take any issue. 
right? Take purpose. Maybe your deepest desire is you want purpose. You've been stuck in COVID land for eight months now or however long it's been, and you're wondering, asking questions like, what am I here for? What is my life? I got laid off, and my identity was in my job, and I don't know what to do anymore, and I can't even make sense of what's going to happen. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what's going to go on. And so purpose is, is core to you. You want to know, what am I here for? What, what am I supposed to be doing in my life? Where does that come from? It's God has made you in His image. He's put that desire in you for Him. And you'll be restless until you have Him. It could be anything. It, it could be a, a desire for love, and so you're seeking it out in a relationship that, that is toxic, and you know it's toxic, but you don't care because you want love so bad. It could be a desire for influence and you will take whatever you can or do whatever you can to try to get greater influence in your job and in your circle. But it's in Him. Right? Whatever your desire may be, it's a craving for the King. It's a searching for God, even if you don't know it. Every hit you've taken, every relationship you've blown up, it's been a desire for Him. And your soul is restless because you're seeking rest in a Savior. And so no matter what you accomplish, no matter how many people you sleep with, no matter how many people praise you at work, you'll keep searching until you find Him. Your desire won't ever be fulfilled until you see He's come for you to be fulfilled in Him. But sometimes when He comes, it, it's not met with, I've been desiring you. It's met with, I'm disturbed. And this is the second point we, we see disturbed by the king. Look at verse 3. This is what happens with Herod. It says, when Herod the king heard this, the news, right? The news that he was coming, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now this is fascinating because Herod the Great, as history likes to call him, he was well known for things you don't want to be known for, which is cruelty, uh, oppression, and building projects. Like, if your life is summed up in cruelty, oppression, and you build nice buildings, it's not the reputation you're looking for. But that's Herod in history. That, that's what he was known for. He would abuse his power to take care or, or take advantage of the powerless. He would build these incredible buildings on the back of the poor, and he was well known for his oppression. And so... People called him king reluctantly. The, the historian Josephus, they said people were forced to call him king of the Jews, even though they didn't want to. And then, listen, here is the magi, these marginalized men from nowhere land, not, not even listed. They come to the king's palace and they say, hey, we got news. There's a new king who's been born king of the Jews. I mean, just imagine for the moment... How, how frustrating that the Bible says, that it uses this word, he was troubled, as the ESV translates it. The word means his insides were disturbed. You ever had that moment someone gives you news and you just feel your stomach flip? It, it, everything within him, it just sunk and, and it just felt like, oh my goodness, there, there is a threat to my life. And by, the Bible says that, all of Jerusalem was disturbed by the news. This new king was a threat. And so Herod gathers together all his religious advisors. You know, he's got a committee on, 
on Christianity or something, and, and uh, you know, he doesn't talk to them unless there's a crisis like this. That's how he views the, the religious leaders. And he says, I want you to tell me where the Messiah is going to be born. And they gather together and they say, okay, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's what the prophets say. And he starts to panic because he realizes that this is going to happen. He realizes this king is coming, this, this one who's been promised. I mean, Herod was half Jewish. He grew up hearing about the Messiah, but now it was a threat to him. Because why? Jesus always divides. Jesus is always a disturbance. I don't know if you've realized that in the Bible, but Jesus is always a troublemaker. When he uses that, that title of the Christ or the Messiah, it's, it's a title that, that invites conflict. It's a title that says, I'm the anointed one. I'm the king. And Herod, that means you're not king. I'm king. Right? Jesus is a threat to our selfish desires. Jesus is a threat to our selfish kingdom. I heard recently that a few years ago, uh, Burger King, the fast food restaurant, they were uh, expanding their, their reach and they were moving restaurants into Belgium. And uh, it was their first you know, restaurants into Belgium. And so they start this ad campaign and uh, they're trying to get the word out that Burger King is coming to Belgium. So they come up with this brilliant marketing online campaign. And it's this. It says, uh, who will be the king? That, that's, that's the tagline in the graphics. And you click on the button and you find out it's a survey, a simple survey with this, this little tag. That's it. It says there's two kings and one crown. Who's going to be king? The Burger King or the Belgium King Philip? And it's got like a little cartoon picture of King Philip, who's the king of Belgium, and a little cartoon picture of the Burger King. And it looks like they're in a boxing match. And it says to the, to the reader, who's going to be king? You pick. This is the best. So if you pick the Burger King, you click on the Burger King. It says, oh, congratulations. Thanks for joining the kingdom. We're so excited. But if you pick King Philip, it says this. It says, really? Is he going to make fries for you? That, that was their comeback. I loved it. Really? Is he going to make fries for you? And if you still pick him, it'll bring you back to the home page and make you pick again. And after three times, it picks for you the Burger King. It's brilliant. And so, you know, basically you have no choice. You can pick King Philip, but you really don't have a choice. And so King Philip gets the word about this little campaign that's spreading on the Internet in Belgium. And of course, he's furious. He tells all his advisors, find out who's behind this. We got to cut this out. They call Burger King and they, they make them take it down. And, and then they respond in the news. And he says this. He says, we know one thing we, we can agree on, us and Burger King. There can only be one king. There can only be one king. See, and that's your problem. That's my problem summed up in a sentence that we want to be king. We want to be king. That, that's what happens in our sinful nature. The very nature of our sinful hearts is we want to be king. I want to be king of my own life. I want to run my life. I want to do my own thing. I want to call the shots. I want to be the one that sets the agenda. I want to be the one that sets the timelines. I want to be in control of how things happen and what's right and what's wrong. I want to be king. From the very first sin in the Garden of Eden, that's been our temptation. 
It's the lust for power. It's the lust for control. Do you remember what Satan whispered in the ear of Adam and Eve? He said, you can be like God. You can be king. You can determine what's right and wrong. You can determine how things happen. You can be God. Every time you and I sin, that's what we do. We, we elevate ourselves to king status. And, and here's the real deception of sin, especially as Christians. The real deception of sins is, is I can say that God can be king in some areas of my life, and I can be king in other areas of my life. We, we have deceived ourselves into believing that there can be two kings, that he can be king over these things, but man, not over my sex life, not over my finances, not over how I interact on the internet, not, not over my marriage. He, he cannot be king in these areas, but I'll let him be king in these. I'll let him be king in areas that I think he has the right. See, we want freedom. We, we talk about freedom. We want freedom, but we only want freedom if that means we can still be in some way king. And Jesus, listen, Jesus is a threat to that reality. Jesus is a disturbance. Jesus is a troublemaker in our life. Right? Our sin and our suffering in this world trembles at the arrival of Jesus because sin knows that when Jesus shows up, there is only one king. It trembles because we know it means that there's a new king in town and the gospel has always been this divisive, disturbing message to sin. It's always been that way. It's always been a disturbing message to evil, whether it's evil in our life or evil in our community. It is a disturbing message because it says you're not king. We pray it every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, right? We, Jesus said, pray the Lord's Prayer. And what is that? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. That, that's saying, I am not king. I want you to invade my life. I want you to take over the areas I don't want to give up. I want you to invade my life and do things that I wouldn't do. I want you to invade my life and take control. I want you to set up your kingdom in every nook and cranny. And so the gospel calls us to choose. Who's going to be king? Is it me or is it Jesus? Who's going to be king in all of my life? Is it me or is it Jesus? Who will rule over every thought, every action, every desire? Is it me or is it Jesus? And the choice is the choice of devotion. This is the last point and we'll close. Devoted to the king. Look at verse 8. It says, and he sent, that's Herod, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now this is hilarious because nobody's buying it. But Herod thinks he can trick them into thinking he actually cares about the child. As if they didn't watch him just get disturbed at the very announcement of his birth. But anyways, he says, I want you all to go to Bethlehem and if you find him, tell me. Now, you'll find out later in the story, they ain't listening to any of that. They, they ain't falling for it. 
But they go. They go to Bethlehem and they follow the leading of God as he's working through this star that's leading them all the way from the east and it settles over this house. And the Bible says that they were exceedingly joy, joyful as, as they see that this is the moment. This is the moment they'd been waiting maybe years for. They'd been tracking the skies, waiting for this message. Look at what it says in verse 11. It says, In going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. I mean, look at the contrast here, right? These men come before the King Herod, and they don't bow down. They don't say, you know, we're going to worship you. They don't do anything but ask for directions. And now they come to this little-known town of Bethlehem, this obscure home with this couple who's scared out of their mind that no one knows, and they bow before a baby boy. I mean, you see the heart of worship, right? They weren't disturbed like Herod and the rest of Jerusalem. They were devoted to the king, the one true king. And they famously lay before him these three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and some have tried to argue different you know, interpretations of what does that mean, right? Maybe the gold is, is a gift fit for a king, even a baby king. And maybe the frankincense is, is related to what they used in the temple as the priests. And this is the high priest who would give his life for them. Maybe the myrrh was, was like it was used to embalm bodies. And so this is saying that the king was born to die. I don't know. We don't know why they brought those gifts. But whatever you do with the gifts, don't miss the main point. They fall on their faces, and the Bible says they open up their treasures to worship Him. To worship Him. They literally lay down their desires for Him. That's what worship is, right? Worship lays down lesser desires for the greater desire. Worship lays down the lesser things for the greater thing. That, that's how it works. The gospel is calling us into that kind of worship. In fact, this title, The King of the Jews, uh, would not be used again until the end of Matthew's gospel. And so I believe that he's bookending here this, this theme of kingship. And if you read the rest of Matthew's gospel, you see a thread throughout the whole uh, work of, of Jesus being king. And you come to the end of the gospel, and the title's used when the religious leaders want to hand Jesus over to the Roman government. They're tired of Jesus. They're tired of his message. They're tired of his, his love for the masses. They they want to get rid of him, and so they know they can't get rid of him by any of the things he's actually said, and they know that none of those things will get him killed, so they make up this thing. They, they go and they tell uh, Pilate, the Roman governor, that Jesus has claimed to be king of the Jews, and he wants to take over the Roman government. That will get you killed. I mean, they, they may not care if you claim to be God, but if you claim to be king, now that's a threat to the system. That's a threat to the power structures, and so... Pilate's like, all right, bring him in. And they put him on trial. And Pilate gets straight to the point. First question out of his mouth, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus, I love his response. He says, who's asking? Jesus is so great in these moments. Just question back and forth with him. Who's asking? Is it you, Pilate? Or is it somebody else? Is somebody else bringing this question because they want to know? Or do you really want to know if I'm the king? I mean, he's zeroing in right to Pilate's heart. He, he wants to use this moment to reach Pilate with the good news. 
And Pilate says this, or actually Jesus says next, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm from another place and I'm bringing this kingdom here. And then Pilate says this, so you are a king then. And then Jesus must have smiled at this point. He says, you said it. I mean, you said it. I didn't say it. You said it. But then he says this. He says, he says, I've come to bear witness to the truth. I've come to bear witness to the truth. And it's at that moment you can tell Pilate is just overwhelmed with this choice that right before him is the one who claims to be king, who's claiming to be truth itself. And you can see in Pilate as he's about to respond, there's this welling up in his heart that he realizes this is a threat. This is a threat to my kingship. This is a threat to my my rule over my life. This is a threat to all the assumptions I have and all the things that I try to control. This is a threat. And so Pilate pushes back with the final word. He says, what is truth? What is truth? It's him throwing up the wall and saying, Jesus, you're not going to conquer me. You're you're not going to invade into my life. You're you're not going to give your kingdom any space in my world. I'm putting it up. What is truth? You can't tell me. And he sends Jesus to be crucified and he hands him over by rejecting the king and he turns Jesus over to the the soldiers and they crown him with thorns. They clothe him with a bloody robe. They nail him to a wooden throne. And what do the soldiers write above his head on the inscription? King of the Jews. And everybody begins to mock him and the crowds join in with the soldiers and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. Hail, King of the Jews. As he's hanging on the cross, on this throne made of wood, on Calvary, we see this king is unlike any other king. We see that this king is not defined by the ways this world works. We see that this king would endure the shame of our sin. This king would prove weakness more powerful. This king would conquer death through a cross. This king would tear down barriers by being torn apart himself. This king would die for enemies that denied him. This king was unexpected. He would be unlike anyone else because he's a, he's a real king. And the question today is, who do you say he is? The same question that Jesus asked to Pilate, this king born in Bethlehem wants our whole hearts. Who do you say he is? This king born to take our place, who do you say he is? Because the gospel says there's a new king in town. There's a new king over your heart. There's a new king over your family. There's a new king over your children. There's a new king over your desires. There's a new king over all of the world. Who do you say he is? Is he king? Is he king? Because we have to lay down our desires if we really believe that. What's he calling you to lay down today? See, Jesus disturbs our desires. He he flips them. He, He disrupts them. Not to to make us just full of anxiety, but he wants to replace them with himself. He is the desire of all nations. That means that he is the desire of every nation and every heart in this room. He is the greatest desire. All that you are searching, the relationship you've been bouncing around in, the the career you're trying to build, the status and the reputation you long for, all of that is a desire for him. For him. And so he disturbs it so he can replace it. 
Who do you say he is? Let's pray this morning. Father, we, we confess that we have tried to take your throne. The lure and the lust of power. The lure and the lust of influence and control is so deep in our sinful hearts. That God, we're just like Herod when you enter into our life and the Spirit speaks to us and we say, wait a minute, who are you? Put him to death. God, we are just as guilty. We are just as broken. But Lord, you're a God who pursues, as we sang earlier, in reckless love. You pursue your enemies. You die for your enemies. You're a king who will step down off his throne and become a baby in a manger. You're a king who would bring his kingdom in so unexpected ways that no one would believe him. I thank you for that. We're grateful for that. And we pray, God, you would bow us to the ground. May we lay down our desires and pick up you as our greatest desire. For your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.